The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Emma Ackerman, personal finance reporter at Market Watch. Today with me is Patrick Cooney, the Assistant Director of Economic Mobility at Poverty Solutions at the University of Michigan. Hi, Patrick. Welcome and thanks for being here. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me. Of course. So with the new year approaching, a lot of people might be looking ahead to 2023's economic story. But when it comes to anti-poverty policy, there's a lot to be gained by examining the recent past instead. So let's go all the way back to 2021, a relatively good year for America's poor, despite unemployment at one point reaching a high of 13% the year prior, just as the COVID-19 pandemic was taking off. So many of us might remember the early pandemic threats of millions of renters losing their homes to eviction and massive lines at food banks. And indeed, 2020 ended with an economy down 9.37 million jobs. Still, by 2021, savings ballooned, credit scores increased, and the share of adults who said that they would be able to cover a $400 emergency expense hit a nine-year high, according to a survey from the Federal Reserve Board. So the supplemental poverty measure, which takes into consideration government aid and moderate household budgets, slid to 7.8%. That was a decrease of 1.4 percentage points from 2020, according to the Census Bureau. And the supplemental poverty measure for children declined to a new low of 5.2% down 4.5 percentage points from 2020. So what was going on? A ton of government investment in social services programs. Patrick, what was the federal government doing in 2020 and 2021 to affect Americans' pocketbooks in this way? Yeah, so, um, you know, as, as you said, it was sort of unprecedented uh, federal government spending over this period. So in, in 2020, 2021, the federal government rolled out sort of three major relief programs to provide income support to U.S. households um, in response to the economic and public health fallout from the pandemic. So there was the, the CARES Act in March 2020. There was a second major relief package in December 2020. And then there was the American Rescue Plan Act in March 2021. Um, and, you know, these bills did a lot of things, but the main thing they did was they sent cash to U.S. households when they needed it. So all three pieces of, uh, of legislation sent economic impacts, impact payments, so also known as stimulus checks, to the vast majority of U.S. households, um, and they expanded and extended the reach and scope of unemployment benefits so that more unemployed people qualified for unemployment benefits and that they received a larger share of their lost income. Um, and then in the American Rescue Plan Act in 2021, there was Congress passed the expanded child tax credit which sent small monthly payments to the vast majority of households with children uh, over the past the last six months of, of 2021. Um, so there's two really important things I think to note about all these measures as it relates to your question. So the first is that these represent a complete reversal in U.S. social safety net policy. So generally, our safety net is means tested, so only going to the lowest income households, and largely in kind, so that benefits are not sort of unconditional um, or can be used for anything, but targeted to a particular resource like food or housing. With the pandemic safety net, however, uh, it it was nearly universal. So the vast majority of households received the benefits. 
and um, and also it was unconditional cash, so families could use the money as they saw fit. So this was kind of a sea change in U.S. social policy. The the second important piece here is the extent to which households with children received support. So, you know, since we've started measuring poverty in the 1960s, children have had the highest poverty rate of any age group in the U.S. And that's sort of a, a national shame, given that uh, many of our peer countries, the poverty rate for kids is below that of the whole population. Um, but during the pandemic, all the issuances of economic impact payments uh, included additional checks for dependents. And then, of course, with the expanded CTC, those only flowed to households with children. Uh, and so you see these overwhelming amount of resources headed to households with children. And as you noted, you know, we, we saw in 2021 the child poverty rate fell to a historic low. And for the first time ever, it fell below that of the general population. Um, so, yeah, those were, the, those were the, the major things, I think, that drove a lot of the outcomes that, and the positive financial outcomes we saw for U.S. households. Thank you. It, it's wild to think about how much changed so quickly. So how do the effects of these you know, new and expanded programs play out in data showcasing material hardship for American households? Because I know that that's something that you're looking often at. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, we paid really close attention to the, to the poverty rate, um, but we also paid attention throughout the entire pandemic to, as you say, rates of material hardship in, in U.S. households. So, so since the start of the pandemic, um, we've been using data provided by the U.S. Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey, which has been asking households every couple of weeks throughout the pandemic uh, a range of questions about their household finances, employment, health outcomes, et cetera. And what you see is that the state of material hardship in U.S. households, so their ability to pay for food and housing and other basic necessities, um, sort of rises and falls in lockstep with the state of government support. So in the early months of the pandemic, you know, I think folks, ourselves included, feared material hardship would be widespread. Um, but then we, the CARES Act was passed, and those measures largely held material hardship at bay. It didn't rise nearly as high as, as people suspected it would. And then in the latter months of 2020, we do see hardship increase. And that was during a period when, you know, the economy was still recovering. Unemployment was still very high. Uh, and Congress delayed further relief action. Uh, so it didn't happen until December of 2020. But then once that December package was passed, we again can see in the data that material hardship takes a dive. And then that happens again after the American Rescue Plan Act um, with really low, low uh, levels of material hardship. Um, and so you can see this pretty clearly in the data. So money goes out to households and immediately measures of food insufficiency and financial instability decline. Um, and so this, what this tells us is, you know, in normal times, quote unquote, you know, there are a lot of households, even during periods of low unemployment, that can't afford food and other basic necessities. When they get a little bit of extra cash, they put it towards food and other basic necessities. The other thing we see is that households with children, you know, throughout the pandemic period, face consistently higher levels of hardship than those without, except for the last six months of 2021. In those last six months of 2021, families started receiving the expanded child tax credit payments. And you see this gap in hardship rates between households with children and those without start to narrow considerably. Um, and so, again, what, what you see, you can see the same kind of um, uh, um, findings we talk about in the poverty rate, you can see it in these um, in these data on material hardship, which we're which we're still seeing from the from the U.S. Census Bureau's um, household poll survey. 
where you can kind of see in real time the impact of government policies and their effect on, uh, on material hardship in U.S. households. Wow, thank you. And I mean, the expanded child tax credit, as you mentioned, um, you know, gave parents a monthly payments of between $250 and $300 per child, but that ended a year ago this December. Pandemic unemployment programs, which provided $300 a week on top of regular unemployment benefits, extended the duration of benefits and allowed more types of workers to qualify, also ended last year. Have we seen the impacts of these programs ending in any data sources yet? Yeah, so you know, this is again why I think the um, this real-time data from the U.S. Census Bureau's Household Poll Survey is so important um, because you know you know we pay a lot of attention to the poverty rate, but that doesn't come out until you know nine months after the year the year ends. It comes out in the fall of the sort of the next year. So we won't know what the 2022 poverty rate is until you know September 2023, um, and so we need data that tells us how how households are doing kind of right now. And when we look at the, the household pull survey, and we've looked at it throughout 2022, um, we see a lot of the gains that we saw in 2021 and 2020 uh, of declining material hardship, particularly for households with children. We see those gains being reversed in 2022. Um, so, you know, material hardship overall is about as high now as it's been throughout the entire pandemic period, uh, which is sort of shocking given that, you know, during the early stages of the pandemic, tens of millions of people were losing jobs, and, and now the unemployment rate is below 4%. Um, and in the absence of the other sort of finding we look at this data is in the absence of the expanded child tax credit, the gap in hardship for households with children versus households without has widened again. So households with children are um, sort of suffering more again. Um, and again, but, but keep in mind, just to, I already mentioned it, but you know, the unemployment rate has been below 4% since February. And so I think this just goes to show sort of how important these income support measures were during the pandemic. Um, you know, if we care about the state of hardship in U.S. households, it appears we can't kind of leave it only to a strong economy to take care of everyone. You know, robust income support uh, is needed as well. Thank you. And I want to remind our audience as well to send in questions in the Q&A as they are able. Um, Patrick, earlier this year, J.P. Morgan Chase reported that the median checking account balances the end of 2021 remained elevated across the income distribution, but especially for low-income families, with those households having balances about 65% higher than 2019 levels. The child tax credit in particular, which I know we've been talking a lot about today, seemed to benefit low-income families. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities reported last year that about 91% of families making less than $35,000 were spending that child tax credit expansion on food, clothing, shelter, utilities, items those same families might be struggling to afford now due to inflation. So how do you think Americans are being affected by this sort of financial whiplash or volatility where they're going from peaks of higher savings and improved credit to valleys of depleted reserves and more credit card debt in the span of a few years? Yeah, you know, you know, so you know, I, we don't have, I don't think, you know, great the best data on the kind of how this is playing out currently. Aside from this this hardship data, where, as you say, I think what one thing we found interesting is, is as you say, the the um, the uh, bank balances that you can see from J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, those are up um, in relation to the pre-pandemic period, still for low-income households, inflation adjusted. So you still see um, these bank balances higher, but you also see this um, this rising hardship, and so I think that might be kind of one one sign of this 
of this volatility. Um, and, and one way that we can pick up on the impacts of the volatility is just simply these surveys that are asking people, you know, were you able to afford food last week? Were you able to afford rent last month? Um, you know, I think that that you can see some of the um, some of the financial hardship and financial uncertainty um, through um, through these surveys. The other thing to note here, I think, is that you know, in general, the research base on income volatility, um, you know, shows that it, it generally does produce kind of poor financial and and health outcomes. Um, so, so for example, one example is that research will show that the households whose income sort of fluctuates, which might cause them to go, you know, on and off of, for example, SNAP benefits, so food assistance, that those households often face more food insecurity than households who may have lower income but stay consistently on on SNAP, so consistently receive food assistance. So what this just suggests is that, you know, households need predictability. Um, and I think this, this calls for the need for more predictable, sort of less complicated and burdensome safety net policies in the U.S. You know, over the two years of the pandemic, you know, it was very kind of stop start with the pandemic as well. Um, but you did have um, you did have a, a bit more of this. You had um, people could depend on unemployment insurance for longer periods of time. Um, people were, the, as I mentioned, the vast majority of people qualified for some of these income supports, so you didn't have to go through this burdensome application process. And you see the impacts of this. You see kind of more dependability in the safety net, and you see um, lower material hardship. And so I think that's part of I think what we can what, what we can learn about um, income volatility as it relates to to the safety net. Thank you. Really interesting points. Um, we have a reader submitted question from Larry who asks. How can we have meaningful impact on poverty to the point that we begin to see numbers dropping in violence in the inner cities across America? Is there a magical dollar amount the government needs to provide? Um, Larry, thanks for this question. I'm gonna let Patrick respond as well, but I wanted to note that a paper out earlier this year from University of Chicago economist Manasi Deshpande and University of Michigan economist Michael Muller-Smith found something interesting about the connection between welfare benefits and violence. They found the removal of social security insurance benefits at 18 increased the number of criminal charges by 20% over two decades, with the increase in charges concentrated in offenses for which income generation was a primary motivation. So I thought that that was one interesting data point about the ways in which welfare benefits may or may not um, relate to crime. Patrick, do you have anything to add about Larry's question? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would just add, I think it's a, it's a great question. I think one that, that everyone would like to have, find that, that sort of magic number. But, I, you know, I do think that at base, as, as, as the research you pointed to sort of finds, is that, you know, financial instability and, and insecurity and financial need um, are, uh, are, are for sure related to, um, to crime and um, ensuring that families have adequate resources and households have adequate resources um, is is clearly one sort of piece of of the broader puzzle. Um, you know, the one thing that I would uh, would add to Larry's question is that the, you know, and I don't think it's only about income support in this case. Um, there's obviously that. Then you get into this kind of these, uh, a whole broader discussion of, of our a range of uh, of systems and policies around around um, uh, in, in this in the entire kind of social policy realm. So. Um, looking at you know sort of the concentration of poverty and getting into into sort of um, housing and, and zoning laws and, and, and housing supports 
um, access to employment generally, I think, is a, is a, is a major factor in, um, in crime reduction. There's some really interesting work going on right now um, in Chicago um, with the University of Chicago Crime Labs involved, um, looking at the, you know, the impact of, um, of sort of subsidized employment um, along with um, sort of mental health supports, cognitive behavioral therapy um, for, for folks who are most at risk of, of gun violence. Um, uh, in Chicago, um, that's, that's been showing some kind of promising results. So I think um, you know you get into a I think a much broader discussion of a range of different systems that need to be fixed when you talk about re- violence reduction. But a key piece of it, no doubt, is is adequate income supports and reduction of material hardships across the board. Thank you. And we're getting some really interesting uh, live questions. And one of them from Hal asks, has the inflation from the stimulus offset its original benefit? And this is something that I really wanted to get at, Patrick. I mean, obviously, inflation is a big part of what's affecting Americans' financial well-being right now. There's been this debate about whether or not significant investments the federal government made in the social safety net contributed to inflation although the extent of that contribution sort of varies. So Larry Summers, Barack Obama's, uh, President Barack Obama's top economic advisor in particular, had warned in 2021 that the American Rescue Plan could increase inflationary pressures. Though we've talked since about how the Russian invasion of Ukraine, supply chain issues, and a shortage of affordable housing may have been drivers of inflation as well. So Patrick, did the government investment in the social safety net contribute to inflation? And if so, by how much? How do we know? How much do we know about this? Yeah. Well, you know, I think most economists would agree that, you know, the pandemic spending probably contributed to inflation somewhat. Um, but, it, you know, it's very much up to debate how much. And, and I don't have the precise answer there. But, you know, as you say, I think there's a couple of points that need to be made here. So as you say, you know, the far more important drivers were likely supply chain issues that came with a global pandemic. Um, um, not to mention one of those supply chain issues is sort of labor in the United States, right? We have this great resorting of labor where tens of millions of people were laid off and tens of millions of people had to get rehired. Um, that, that comes with its own sort of supply chain snarls. Um, but as you say, also low housing production, you know, housing has been a, a big, a big driver of, um, of inflation over the past months. Um, and then of course the war in Ukraine, you know, affecting food and, and energy prices. Um, so, you know, given these circumstances, it seems pretty clear that prices would we would have seen a rise in prices no matter what. Um, so, I, you know, I caution against kind of reflexively blaming policies um, that ended up helping an awful lot of people over this period. The other thing to keep in mind here that I think people often forget is that if pandemic relief spending did contribute meaningfully to inflation, we have to remember it also contributed meaningfully to our rapid economic recovery. Um, you know, so there's pretty widespread agreement that insufficient government spending during and in the wake of the Great Recession, for example, contributed to a, a much longer recession than we might have otherwise had and years of high unemployment, which is, you know, had devastating impacts on so many communities in the U.S. Um, and but because of relief efforts during the pandemic, you know, the official recession was only like a couple months. Um, uh, uh, because so many households who lost work were propped up with income support. And so consumer spending kind of shoots right back up um, uh, at a time when, when, when millions of people were unemployed. Um, and, and then what you see in the month after is that jobs and employment come, come roaring back. So, you know, if we had the choice between 
long periods of high unemployment or or uh, what we hope will be still temporarily higher prices, you know, I think a lot of folks would have chosen that that like, the scenario we're in now, the, the sort of current scenario. You know, we don't have a good counterfactual, right, of, of what would have happened um, but for uh, this these pandemic supports. And, um, you know, when you have a scenario right now where, yes, we, have, we do have higher prices, um, but you have um, uh, really low unemployment, you know, that's, that's probably, you know, it, it may be the best scenario we could have hoped for coming out of the pandemic. The last thing in, in terms of the, the question, um, you know, there's also a lot of data showing that um, of all the, the um, folks who have been impacted by in, inflation, and obviously uh, it, it's, it's, it's impacting uh, all U.S. households, um, you know, low inc- the lowest income households or lower income households um, may be, you know, if not, you know, faring great against inflation, um, are, they're not faring kind of worse than other income income households. We've seen we've seen wage gains with for, for low wage for low wage workers um, to be to be sure. Um, now, low wage workers are are also kind of bearing the brunt of higher energy and food prices. Um, but you know, all all that to say is that it doesn't seem like it's necessarily disproportionately. Uh, impacting um, lower-income households, um, but no, I think it's a I think it's a great question. I just think that the I think what we have to keep in mind is is kind of the the very weird times in which in which you know this inflation uh, came about, and the fact that you know we we ha- always have to keep in mind just just how successful our economic recovery was, um, and that was due in large part to um, to the pandemic safety net that was erected over the past couple of years. Thank you. And Hal, I hope that answers your question. A really important one that's certainly on the top of a lot of folks' minds right now. And Patrick, you got at this a bit, but we have a question from Bob that asks, does the high inflation hurt vulnerable households? As Patrick mentioned, there have been uh, pretty significant wage gains among lower income households, but that doesn't discount the fact that Households are still facing higher food costs um, and certainly higher housing costs. Patrick, was there anything that you wanted to add to that point? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think one thing I think that's exactly right, and that's you know that's something that we're seeing as I, as I mentioned before in uh, in the hardship, in the material hardship data, right? Like we can see the impacts of inflation. We know it's hurting. It is hurting households um, and lower income households to be sure. Um, uh, particularly in these areas of basic necessities in, in paying for, uh, in paying for food and other basic necessities. So I think one thing that, one thing to sort of keep in mind here, right, is that, you know, in the, you know, in that policymakers need to be keeping in mind is that, you know, the, the, um, you know, the Federal Reserve is going to make sure that they have inflation under control. Um, and the tool they have to do it is, is higher interest rates, which is a pretty broad tool that, that kind of reverberates throughout the entire economy. Um, should that spark, you know, higher unemployment or, you know, just general financial tightening, um, uh, more slack labor markets and households, you know, the households need support now and they'll need even more support. So you have to be thinking about these two things kind of in tandem, that the, the Fed's going to get inflation under control. But it calls to mind that we might need some of these pandemic safety net policies like the expanded child tax credit in order to make sure that the burden of higher prices um, and to be sure the burden of higher prices and if there is um, kind of more job loss in the future um, that households are taken care of. And what you're saying ties really well into my next question, um, which is, you know, whether or not government spending is seen as a big driver of inflation might be really key to bringing some of these 
pandemic era programs back. So right now we know that Democrats are trying to put an expanded child tax credit, perhaps not exactly the same one that we saw in 2021, but an expanded child tax credit nonetheless on the table before Republicans take control of the House in January. And this would probably be paired with tax breaks for corporations. And recently with concerns that unemployment may rise next year, there's also been this discussion on how to improve the unemployment insurance system uh, before that may happen. Patrick, do you think that there's any reality of these pandemic era benefits returning and in what form? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't I don't know. Um, I, I I really do hope that there's a that there is um, uh, action on the expanded child tax credit. Um, and I think that's probably the best shot for any of the kind of pandemic era programs to make their way into kind of permanent U.S. policy. This is the one that we always I think thought would make its way into permanent U.S. policy that once households were receiving the um, the expanded child tax credit, the kind of political support for it would be too high that you kind of couldn't take it away. Um, so it's unfortunate that it that this ha- that doesn't happen yet. Doesn't mean that it won't. And again, there's still there's still um, a chance that um, a deal could be made. And I think the key point there is that you know the advantages of the expanded child tax credit over the previous version of the child tax credit, I think were two. One was that it was much larger than the previous credit. And then the second was that, you know, in the, under the previous credit, a lot of households with the lowest incomes, uh, because the, the credit wasn't fully refundable, a lot of households who were, who were the um, uh, sort of most disadvantaged, they missed out on that credit. They didn't receive any benefit from it. Um, and so the full refundability of, uh, of the tax, of the expanded child tax credit was sort of the, um, the key piece of why it was so important, why it looked, why did it end up looking like a universal child benefit that we see in many other Western wealthy nations that have child poverty rates a lot lower than ours. So those are the, 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 the kind of the, the things to, to keep in mind um, uh, in, um, in, in ensuring that, you know, if, if we if we do move on expanded child tax credit, that it has some of those same features that it, it may not look the exact same as the one that we had um, during the pandemic, um, but ensuring that, that that it reaches those families at the very bottom. Uh, is I think the, the the key point there. The second point you raised on on uh, unemployment insurance, I think that's I think you're exactly right. I think it, it couldn't be more urgent an issue. Um, that we this happened you know during the Great Recession. Uh, it happened again during the pandemic recession, where states are unprepared uh, to um, uh, to pay out un, un, unemployment insurance benefits uh, at the scale and size needed during economic downturns. The federal government has to step in. Um, and uh, the, 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 the system, the, the unemployment insurance system, which is a federal state partnership, is in dire need of reform so that it's not a kind of a crisis scenario every time there's an economic recession, but that the unemployment insurance system does provide this kind of counter-cyclical um, income support to enable sort of macroeconomic stability. Um, and right now, it's, 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 n- it's not able to do that without massive federal intervention that we see every time there's a recession. So it's in dire need of reform, to be sure. Thank you. And we're getting some really interesting questions in uh, from folks. So thank you so much for engaging with us. Here's one from Christopher. He asks, as investors, how can we help tackle poverty? I see things like engaging I see things like engaging portfolio corporations about wages and benefits, supporting shareholder resolutions on these topics. What else do you see us being able to do as investors? Patrick, do you have any thoughts on that? That's a, yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, you know, I I do think that the um, questions around um, um, around around sort of 
wages and um, and hours and sort of those types of uh, labor, you know, labor pro labor regulations. Um, uh, that is definitely kind of a, a big a big piece of it. Um, you know, we've been um, we've been talking a lot about. Uh, the role of government benefits in sort of providing income support. And one reason that's needed is because, you know, the share of, um, uh, of, of income going to labor over the, over the past decades has declined considerably. And so I think that is one piece of it of sort of changing, um, changing some of the, some of the dialogue um, around there. The second, you know, another kind of major one though is, um, is thinking about um, investments in um, in under-resourced um, communities. Um, so, uh, you know, I live um, here in, in Detroit, um, and one kind of major issue that's that's happened in Detroit is sort of a lack of um, traditional mortgage lending, for instance, um, um, in the city. There's obviously because of the sort of scars of the Great Recession, uh, where there might have been a little bit. Um, too much of that, um, and to, um, to households that, that maybe couldn't couldn't afford it, and these sort of um, predatory loans that were happening. Um, uh, there's been a, a, a huge kind of retrenchment, um, uh, and there is, I think, I think a need for um, for sort of more traditional banks to uh, extend opportunity for for home ownership um, uh, uh, in the city to you know to enable. Um, folks to um, afford to, to obtain safe, stable, and affordable housing, and potentially build wealth. And so that's something that I think is true um, across um, uh, a lot of um, uh, cities like Detroit across the U.S. So that's another kind of area where um, where potentially more more support um, is needed from kind of those um, traditional actors. Thank you. And we have another question from Neil who asks. You do not think that keeping interest rates artificially low, which made housing payments less than rents, caused the current rise in housing shortages? And Neil, I think I might be able to tackle this one. I think that you are asking about whether, you know, the sort of white hot housing market that we saw early in the pandemic caused by both lower prices and really competitive interest rates contributed to this uh, really, really tight affordable housing shortage. And the answer is pretty nuanced, I suppose. And you're speaking my language here because I cover housing and I'm really, really interested in it. So unfortunately, the housing shortage has been a problem for quite some time and predates the pandemic um, for a multitude of factors. You know, experts would cite restrictive zoning, cost of construction, um, and a multitude of things. However, that's not to say that the low interest rates and lower housing prices did not contribute to investors in particular snapping up a lot of homes, particularly in lower income neighborhoods this has been documented by some media outlets and researchers during the pandemic. So I hope that answers your question. But Patrick, do you have anything to add to that point? No, I think that but I think you, you know, you hit the nail on the head that the, uh, you know, there's obviously the, the, the sort of housing shortage problem is a problem that's years or decades long in the making um, in terms of not not uh, not building enough enough housing to sort of ease affordability affordability issues the, the second thing I'll say just on, on, the, on the housing affordability side is that you know in the US we sort of have two separate housing affordability crises right you have one housing affordability crisis for uh, for for more um, middle to upper income folks where you know, you get, um, it's a supply problem. If you build more housing, you might be able to ease some of the prices 
in rents um, um, and, and mortgages. But the second one is for, for, for lower-income households where the market simply will not provide housing at a price point that would be affordable to them. And that relates back to our nation's sort of overall uh, under-support for, um, for housing assistance. So, you know, the, the numbers are somewhere around 40% of the people who actually need housing assistance or a housing voucher actually receive it. Um, and so you're left with a, a broad swath of, of low-income households paying way more than what is deemed an affordable amount of household income um, for rent. And so that's just another piece of it that often gets, gets left behind. People, I think, will talk about housing affordability, and they say, well, we can, we can build our way out of it. And that's clearly a, one, of, one piece of the solution. The other piece of it, though, is um, expansion of government support for, um, for housing systems for, for lower-income households. Thank you. And we have one more question from Hal. And thank you, Hal, for engaging with us, who asks, will the Republican House go for a safety net for the newly unemployed? And Patrick, you got at this a bit. And I will remind, you know, the, the CARES Act, which initiated some of these unemployment programs, did come about under the EI Trump administration. So, you know, things can happen, I suppose, um, depending on economic circumstances and what might be seen as politically popular. And I believe that pandemic unemployment assistance, which uh, provided for coverage for more folks, was also extended under the Trump administration uh, when Republicans were in control. Patrick, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think the the, the last couple of things I'd say is, you know, specifically on unemployment insurance, it, it does seem like it's it's an area that could receive, um, uh, you know, a sort of bipartisan support. So. You know, in the 80s and 90s, there were there were these reports that that came out on what we should do to reform our unemployment insurance system, and they were written um, by commissions made up of both Republicans and Democrats. And the um, the the sort of findings of those reports and the, the recommended reforms uh, are a lot of the same ones that we need still for our system today to sort of shore up our unemployment insurance system. Um, so this is not necessarily an issue that should be um, you know sort of one that's thought of as uh, Republican or Democrat, but it's just basic, a basic kind of social insurance function um, that we should have, um, and we should have it sort of robustly in, in, in the U.S. And the second thing about, about that is that, you know, as I mentioned, whenever there's a recession, the, the federal government ends up stepping in to sort of rescue these state systems where the UI trust funds are, are sort of bankrupt. And that, that leads to another, you know, issue where you, you could see some appetite for reform where the federal government takes a more active role in unemployment insurance nationally, um, particularly during high periods of unemployment, um, so that, again, we don't have to go into kind of panic mode every time there's a recession, but that there are, there are clear systems in place to ensure that folks um, are receiving benefits. And there's a larger share of unemployed workers, because uh, a lot of under normal circumstances, a lot of unemployed workers just don't, they're not eligible for unemployment benefits for a number of reasons, uh, but that, that we can have uh, systems in place that uh, a larger share of unemployed workers are eligible for unemployment insurance benefits as well. Thank you. And Hal, I hope that answers your question. Thank you again for asking it. So that is all the time that we have for today. I want to thank you for being here, Patrick, and thank the audience for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow. Barron's Deputy Editor Ben Levinson and healthcare industry reporter Josh Nathan Kazis will discuss the outlook for healthcare stocks and the latest news on COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy and have a wonderful rest of your day. 
The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.